Those in Bluffton and Hilton Head in here, would you just bow your heads with me? And those in Graniteville, let's be still. Our Father, we thank you for this season of the year in which we celebrate the incarnation of your Son. Thank you for his willingness to leave the splendor of heaven and to take on our humanity. You paid, Lord Jesus, a debt that we could not pay, a debt you did not owe. And there in our place, you bore the just wrath we deserve. Thank you that you came into this world, you said, to save sinners. May we be sensitive to the commission that you've given us in these next few weeks and Help us, Father, to find people in and around our community, hearts that you are preparing and working in, and help us to reach out to them, to invite them to the musical, to Christmas Sunday, to the Christmas candlelight service, that you would bless those three gatherings in a powerful way, and that because of our efforts and your faithfulness, not wishing for any to perish, that people would find Christ and that the church, the body of Christ, would be edified. Father, we live in a day of so much compromise and a day when even many of your people have stopped sharing the gospel. Help us, Father, never to be ashamed. May we gossip the gospel, as Paul literally said. May we be faithful with the message that you've given us. Now, we come to you today and we open our hearts before you. We are like little children. We need your help and we need you to speak. And so only as you are able, thank you for the Spirit who is our teacher, that he works behind the printed page and illumines it to the heart and mind of the believer. May he speak to each and every person and to those that are listening that have never met your son. May today be a turning point. May they see their need and may they call upon Jesus. Help me, Father, fill me and anoint me and use this message for all who will hear it. I ask it in Jesus' most holy name, amen. Would you take the word of God this morning and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 16. You can see that the title of this morning's message is the God of judgment and the God of grace. Now we have in this 16th chapter been studying the bold judgments of God. And if you were here last time, when you come to this 16th chapter, it is obvious that the dam of God's great grace and love and patience has broken to his wrath. And when you reach this 16th chapter, it's obvious that what David prophesied in Psalm 103, that God would, would not keep his anger forever, you see the fullest expression of God's anger that you will ever see apart from the lake of fire. And all the way through this seven-year period, God has been turning up the thermostat, the rheostat of his, of his wrath. And the greatest expression is seen in these seven bowls. But as this chart reminds you, uh, you do not have to be here for this coming time because the next great event on God's prophetic calendar is the catching up of the church. All of a sudden, in a moment's time, it could happen today, all true Christians will suddenly be gone across the planet. And a short time thereafter, weeks, days, maybe hours, we don't know for sure, a peace treaty will be signed with the nation of Israel. A false Messiah will come on the scene. And this seven-year period that is defined as such, not just by 
the Revelation, but also by the prophet Daniel, is divided into two halves in both of those books. In the first half, Israel is falsely protected, and then in the second half, she is unjustly persecuted. In the first half, you find the seal judgments, seven seals, and in the seventh seal are contained seven trumpets. And there's an event right in the middle of this seven-year period known as the abomination of desolation where the Antichrist in an idolatrous act will claim to be God and will invite people through his false prophet to worship a statue there in the temple. And the Jews will have their eyes opened and they will reject this man. And they will be persecuted like they will never have been before. During this time in human history, two-thirds of all the living Jews will die during this seven-year period. But God will save a remnant for Himself. And in the second half, the trumpet judgments unfold, seven of which are recorded in Scripture. And in the seventh trumpet are seven bulls of wrath. Now, when you come to this 16th chapter, there's plague after plague after plague coming like a trip hammer. We saw first the malignant sores that men would experience. We saw the oceans, the seas of this world literally turn into blood. And then all the fresh water sources are turned into blood. If that were not enough, men are scorched by the heat of the sun. They're burned. Added to that, there's a period of darkness followed by deception. And all people can do in the darkness is literally gnaw their tongues because of the pain. And people who would read this section, if this is all they read, they might say, where is the God of compassion and grace and love? And God actually anticipates that question, that it would be in some people's minds. And so He is going to give us an explanation. I was speaking with a young woman this week who told me that her brother had just one way of thinking. And she said, I resent all these people who go around saying that if you do not believe the way he believed, and he believed on the Lord Jesus as his Savior, I did his funeral this week, he's 23 years old, that if you don't believe the way he believed, that you go to hell. And I explained to her, I said, look, the, the message of Christianity sometimes can be portrayed out of balance that God is pictured only as a God of wrath, but not a God of love and compassion. And yet, if you read the Revelation in its whole, you see both expressions of the wrath of God and the grace and love and the compassion of God. But here in the worst of all the tribulation, anticipating that some people may accuse God of being unjust, God has two angels step up to the plate. Here in verse 5, notice... And I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. The angels of the waters, there's angels that have different ministries, and there's one angel who's over the waters. And I often wonder, I'll find out when I get to heaven, if this angel was over even the waters of judgment in Noah's day. But he's clearly over the waters during the time of this seven-year period. And he says, just the opposite is true. Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. And then he further elaborates in verse 6, because they, meaning these who took the mark of the beast, who martyred the saints, poured out the blood of the saints and prophets, 
You have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And then a second witness, because everything is to be confirmed by the mouth of two or, wit- two or three witnesses, steps up. And a second angel, I heard the altar saying, meaning a second angel at the altar, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And I said to this woman, I said, listen, if the Bible is true, hell is a very real place. But I also told her that we don't speak like her brother didn't speak. He didn't speak just about the judgment of God. He also spoke about the grace of God Almighty and the compassion of God Almighty. And we paint a full picture of the living God. So a few times here in the course of the revelation, I've pushed the pause button, and this is one of those mornings, because I want to develop a systematic theology in your thinking that the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. Some people say, well, you know, I, I don't believe in the God of the Old Testament. I said, they haven't read the New Testament very well, because really the expressions of God's judgment and wrath are far greater in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. But He is not only a God of judgment, He is a God of grace. And so I want us to look at a number of different passages this morning that affirm that truth, and we're going to study it systematically. But as our central text this morning, I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're in the Revelation and you're new to the Bible, just fan back a little bit, and you will soon come to 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, before I read our passage, let me set it in its context. When you come to 2 Peter chapter 2, the tone dramatically changes because in the first chapter, it's filled with encouragement on how to live a holy life. And the second chapter is filled with warning about heresy and false teachers. And in verse 1 of this chapter, he tells us just as there were false teachers during the Old Testament, he tells us there will be false teachers during the New Covenant time. And so if you will notice verse 1 of this chapter, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there also, uh, just as there will be also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words, and their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. He gives us four characteristics of a false pastor, a false teacher, a false prophet. Number one, they're men of deception, and so they're called false False teachers, false prophets, their message is not true. And many times it's just out of balance. Second, they are men of destruction. They destroy good churches. Jude and the parallel text says they, they secretly enter into the church unnoticed and they ruin great churches. And there were once great churches and great institutions in America that today are apostate. The devil as an angel of light, as we discussed last week, will bring these teachers into the church. And what is so challenging is that they use the language of historic Christianity, but they use a different dictionary in which to define the terms. They're men of deception. They're men of destruction. Third, they are men of denial. They deny the Savior who bought them. I hope you know, contrary to my five-point Calvinist friends, Christ died for everyone even the false prophet who denies them, as this text highlights. And fourth, he tells us, there are men with evil desires. They are driven by sensuality 
and greed. And that's all in the first three verses. Now, with that description of a false teacher, he then gives a very severe warning and a wonderful promise. Follow along as we read, beginning now in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, again, I want to speak on the God of judgment and the God of grace. And I want us to consider that God is a God of judgment and wrath, but God is also a God of grace and rescue. And those are not two opposing characteristics. They're not two opposing thoughts. They make up the very nature of God. God does not hold back his judgment, but does, neither does God withhold his grace. And to help us to understand that, Peter dips back into the Old Testament, and he gives us three illustrations of God's wrath, and then he gives us two illustrations of God's grace, and then he gives us a present-day application for everyone sitting within the sound of my voice. Now, if you're using your outline, first, I want you to see that a day is coming when false teachers will experience the judgment of God. False teachers will experience the judgment of God. Peter saw no hope for these apostates. Their doom was sealed. You say, I thought if there's breath, there's hope. Not always. A person can cross a line known only to God where they can no longer ever cross back. And their doom is sealed. And he will describe such men in this text. Now, his attitude, Peter's attitude, is different from the tolerant mindset of many Americans. And a lot of Americans say, well, you know, we may not all agree, but, you know, there's many paths to heaven. All you need to do is pick one. Well, verse 15, which we will not dissect today, tells us that these false teachers have forsaken the right way, which simply means they're going the wrong way. Every path is not right and true. And though we may not think that God really cares, and while we may look around our world that seemingly is getting increasingly evil, and we think that God is asleep, Peter wants us to know that God is very much in tune with everything that is happening. He just told us at verse 3 that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. They've already been tried and found guilty. And while we cannot see the judgment yet, payday is someday, it is coming. God promises it. God is not going to wink at sin. God is going to judge every sin. And what we fail to understand is that God cannot, God will not, God can never, ever overlook a single sin or he would topple from his throne of righteousness. And I hope every unrepentant sinner 
Within the sound of my voice is listening, and I hope every believer is listening, that we might carry out our ministry of warning people of the wrath to come. So pay close attention to these three illustrations. First, I want you to notice that God showed his judgment when he punished angels. God showed his judgment when he punished angels. We read in verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, there's a lot we do not know about the creation of angels and the fall of Lucifer and his demons, but there's a whole lot that we do know in terms of how the star of the morning became the father of darkness. And if you were with us earlier in our series in Revelation in the 12th chapter, we discussed that and we, look at, we looked at some of the parallel passages in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that describe the fall of Satan. And from those passages, it is clear that Lucifer was once the chief angel of God, but in his pride, he rebelled against God and with him one third of all the angels, Revelation 12, 4 teaches. And so today, you can take all the angels in the world, and you can divide them into two categories. There are holy and elect angels, and then they are fallen angels that are called demons. And even amongst the fallen angels, there are two categories. There are those who are free to roam and wage war in the heavenly places, and they will try to wage war in your life and among our presence this week. And then there's a category of bound angels, and even those bound angels fall into two categories. We've studied a group of angels that are in the abyss. They've committed heinous, wicked things that God locks them up. But those angels are going to be released someday during the time of the tribulation. But there's a second category of angels that do not have freedom to roam and wage war, and they are eternally bound and will never be freed to wage war. And that's what he's describing here. Angels who've been committed to pits of darkness. The King James renders it this way. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. One translation says pits of darkness. The other says chains of darkness. Both are right. There's not a single word that will capture the Greek, but both translations acknowledge that these angels are in a place called hell. And this, by the way, is not the normal word that is translated hell in the New Testament, Gehenna, that normally describes the lake of fire. This actually describes a particular region of hell. And so in some Bibles of the world, they don't even translate it hell. They just transliterate the Greek and they call it Tartarus because that's what the word is. He's describing a place called Tartarus. It's a holding cell where these angels will never be freed, and someday all of Tartarus, along with all of Hades, will be cast into the lake of fire. So Peter assumes, of course, that his readers in the first century understand something about these angels, but we can no longer, of course, assume that in our day. They knew why these angels were incarcerated, and so we need to ask, well, why are these divine fallen angels of God these created angels of God, restricted in in these chains of darkness. Well, Jude tells us in his little epistle. So turn over to the book of Jude. It's just a few pages right before from where you are, and it's the last book 
right before Revelation. It's just one page long in most of your Bibles, the book of Jude. By the way, the book of Jude and Second Peter are parallel chapters in the Bible. They're written for different purposes, but they do parallel one another and for a reason. And so the apostle Jude makes a comparison between the judgment that is going to come upon these false teachers with the judgment that has happened in the past. And he wants us to know, like Peter, that just as sure as God brought judgment in the past, God is going to bring judgment in the future. Look at verse 6 of Jude. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. He tells us there's a group of angels who did not keep their own domain, but they abandoned their proper abode. That is, they left the way God created them to function as angels. And they did something that was so vile and so unnatural that they have to be locked up and committed to pits of darkness. Verse 7 tells us what they did, just as, see those first two words? In other words, he's making a comparison. He said they're under bonds of darkness for the judgment of that great, great day. Why? Well, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, these who, the angels he just described in verse 6, since they, as the same way as these, did something that was comparable to what the people of Sodom and Gomorrah did, who also left the natural way in which God created people to function. We learn that these angels, like the men of Sodom, indulged, notice, in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so the Bible says they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now, the people of Sodom indulged, the Bible says, in gross immorality. And if you read all of the accounts about Sodom, you discover that the Twin Cities were covered over in the sin of homosexuality, here called gross immorality. But they also did something in that they went after strange flesh. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can go and read the details in Genesis 19 where there you find the men of Sodom going after strange flesh and that they went after angelic visitors that came to Lot's house. And even when those angels struck the men by the power of God with blindness, they were still clamoring at the door, driven by their lust, trying to get in and to ravage these men. That was people leaving their proper abode and going after angels. You might ask, well, is there any record in Scripture where angels, like the men of Sodom, left their proper abode? Well, again, they understood it in the first century, but God wants us to understand it here in the 21st century. Turn to the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. The first five books in the Bible are named after Greek words that are found in the Septuagint. If you had a Hebrew Bible, they don't call it Genesis. That's a Greek word, genesis. It means beginning. They call it Bereshit. And so in the Jewish Bible, each of the first five books are named after the words at the beginning of each of the first five books. Bereshit is the very first word in all the Bible. It means in the beginning. And this is the book of beginnings, and it gives us a lot of insight into why things are the way they are. Look at Genesis 6, 1. Now, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. 
and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. Now, by the way, every time you see the designation, the sons of God is used in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. And if you were reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation, which is what most Jews read in Christ's day and what is repeatedly quoted in the New Testament when they reference the Old Testament, sons of God is always translated angeloi, angels, because that's what is in view. And that becomes obvious as you read the Old Testament. For instance, in the book of Job, God reminds Job that no man can instruct an all-knowing God as seen in the question he asks him. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Where were you, Job? And then he asked when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's what we call a Hebrew parallelism. If you read Proverbs like many of you do once a day, there's parallelisms all the way through Proverbs where this phrase equals this phrase. And that's how it's structured here. The morning stars equals the angels, that is, the sons of God. And some English translations follow the Septuagint interpretively, and so they don't literally translate it, the sons of God, but one says, while the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. His point is, men were not around when God created the world, but the angels were, and they sang. And if you remember in Job 1 and Job 2, the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God, the Angeloi, the angels, came into the presence of God with Satan. And the term is used of both holy angels and fallen angels. And they said, in essence, God, Job follows you because you've blessed him. You've bought his love. Take it away, and it will become obvious that he doesn't really love you. And so God uh, allows certain things within certain parameters to be done to Job to prove that he is indeed a righteous man. But the point is, is that the sons of God there is a reference to angels. Now, I should say parenthetically, for the first 1,500 years of church history, there was not a single interpretation on the book of Genesis that took the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men is anything different than angels cohabitating with women. But I need to tell you, because it's become popular in our day, some say that what is taking place here in Genesis 6 is that the godly line of Seth is intermarrying with the ungodly line of Cain. But that's impossible for at least four reasons. Let me give them to you. The text does not say the sons of men saw the daughters of men were beautiful. No, rather, it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took them as wives. Clearly, verse 2, the contrast is not made between the descendants of Seth and the descendants of Cain, but between angels, the sons of God, and the daughters of men. And if this were the sin of a mixed marriage, as some teach today, then it's rather strange as taught that only the sons of Seth and not the daughters of Seth and only the daughters of Cain and not the sons of Cain were involved. And by the way, I won't be surprised if when I get to heaven someday to find out that Satan had a plan in all of this and that he was trying to corrupt the human race in order that the Messiah could not be truly human and therefore come into the world. But to interpret this 
as intermarriage between believers and unbelievers is what we call eisegesis. It's reading into the text. So it must refer to angels because, again, the term sons of God, number two, is never, ever, ever used anywhere in every passage of the Old Testament but for angels. And what's interesting is these people are not consistent because while they say here it's the, uh, you know, it's the unbelieving men of Cain's lineage who are intermarrying, yet they acknowledge sons of God refers to angels and all the other texts. So one, they're not consistent. Third, angels cohabitating with women clearly must be in view because one cannot ignore the offspring. Look at the offspring here in verse 4, the Nephilim. Now, the King James interprets the word Nephilim, but correctly so. They say the giants, because the Nephilim, that's a Hebrew word that means giants. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, and they were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, angels, the Bible said, are greater in strength and might than people. Now, sometimes people will say, well, wait a minute, angels can't cohabitate with men because Jesus said, in heaven, we're like the angels where we neither marry nor are given in marriage. That's not what you can conclude from Jesus' statement. In heaven, you are like the angels in that you don't procreate. You don't have children any more than angels today don't cohabitate with other angels and produce little baby angels known as cherubs. Now, they're all over the Hallmark cards, but they're not anywhere in the Word of God. That's a man-made myth. Angels don't have angel babies. But that does not mean that an angel, when they take on human form, could not literally, actually, physically cohabitate with a woman. The Living Bible, which is a paraphrase, interestingly renders the verse, in those days and even afterwards, when the evil beings from the spirit world were sexually involved with human women, their children became giants of whom so many legends are told. Now, we do know that when an angel takes on humanity, that they are able to assimilate food and drink. Genesis 18 tells us that when the angels have a fellowship meal with Abraham. We also know from Genesis chapter 19 that the men of Sodom wanted to have relations with the two angels that came. And by the way, in every single appearance of an angel in the Bible, they are always male. I'm not saying that there couldn't be a female angel, but there's no record of a female angel anywhere in the Word of God. In every instance, when an angel appears, they are men. And these men of Sodom, as did Lot himself, they recognized the possibility to be able to have a relationship with these two angelic men. Sodom, um, uh, I mean, Lot was so foolish that recognizing the possibility that he offered his two virgin daughters instead because he recognized it was a reality that could happen. Now, angels are greater in might and strength than men. And so if an angel was able to cohabitate with a woman, you would expect a freak race, and that's what happened. Now, let me give you a fourth reason for saying that these are angels cohabitating 
with women, and it's the best reason. God actually gives us divine commentary on this. And the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. You've got your finger in 2 Peter. Turn back a few pages to 1 Peter and go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter instructs us that between the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he went on a preaching mission to some fallen angels who were confined and would not have known of his victory over the cross. The rest of the angelic world, the book of Colossians tells us, were mocked. He made a display over them and all of their power through the victory of his cross. But there was a group of angels who did not witness what happened there at Golgotha and then on Sunday morning. We're told in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, that's he, for us, the unjust. Why? So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Please note, it doesn't say made alive in the flesh. Now, there are some liberal theologians, one pastor in Hilton Head, who says that Jesus didn't literally physically rise from the dead. He spiritually was risen from the dead, and so he's being raised in our hearts today. That's heresy. Jesus physically, literally, actually came out of the tomb. And the latter portion of this chapter will affirm that, but that's not what's in view in here. Jesus was dead in the flesh, but in his spirit, between the time he was laid in that cold, clammy tomb, and on Sunday morning when he physically, literally came out of the grave in a glorified, resurrected body, in his spirit, he went on a preaching mission. Now, what that looked like, I don't know. Certainly, when Samuel, before his bodily resurrection has happened, he was visible and he came out of the grave in a spirit body when he appeared before the witch of Endor Endor and Saul. Moses and Elijah and their spirit bodies were visibly pictured there on the Mount of the Transfiguration. But their bodily resurrection, their resurrection body has not yet happened. However it happened, in his spirit, it says, in which, in his spirit before he was raised, in which also he went and he made proclamation to the spirits, a term used for angels, now in prison, same group we're talking about, who once were disobedient, when? When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Now, again, who does this refer to in verse 20, this who? It goes back to the spirit beings, that's the nearest antecedent, who are now in prison, and they were engaged during the time of Noah. Now, I don't know about you, but that settles it for me. I'm letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So think your way through this. Genesis 6, Moses is recording for us something that Peter and Jude give us divine commentary on that the sons of God, the angels, left their proper abode by cohabitating with the daughters of men. Now, angels, of course, when they take on our humanity, the Bible tells us that they look like real human beings. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews says you can entertain an angel without even knowing it. And so when these fallen angels left their proper abode, they did something that was so wicked that right now, this morning, as I speak, they are in prison, they are committed to pits, they are in chains, uh, in pits of darkness. So, follow what Peter is saying. 
after Jesus was laid in the tomb, before he was raised on Sunday, in his spirit, he went on a preaching mission. Now, in the old confessions of faith, it says Christ died for our sins, he was buried. He descended into hell, and it's a specific compartment of hell, Tartarus. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Now, in some of the newer confessions, they've removed that phrase, he descended into hell, because Roman Catholics began to teach that Jesus descended into hell to pay for sin, and that's wrong. On the cross, he paid for our sin. On the cross, he shouted to Telestai, it is finished. But nonetheless, the Bible teaches as the ancient as the ancient um, confessions reflect, that between Jesus' being laid in the tomb and being raised from the dead, he went on a preaching mission, and he preached to a category of angels that did not know of his victory. And if you read all of 1 Peter 3, which we won't, the point is, is that Christ is victorious in heaven above. He's victorious in the spiritual realm in which angels are waging war, and he's victorious even in the deepest caverns of this place called called Tartarus. And so follow the logic here. You say, well, I don't understand all of this and what the point is. Don't miss the point. Look at 2 Peter 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 4 again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Why is Peter raising this point? Because it appears, and it especially appears in our day, that the devil is winning. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And God wants us to know that the powers, the rulers, the world forces, all of those fallen imps that are waging war in the heavenly places have been defeated, just like some of the angels have been committed to pits of darkness. And just as God judged some angels, though it appears these false teachers are getting away with it, God is going to judge them as well. So to confirm this even further, he gives us a second illustration. First, God showed his judgment when he punished angels. Secondly, God showed his judgment when he punished the ancient world. Beginning now in verse 5, the apostle Peter gives us a second illustration that God will judge these false prophets. And if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. This then is the point. Neither then will God spare these false prophets, these false teachers, just like he did not spare the ancient world in Noah's day. Now, the Bible tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You don't learn that in the Old Testament. You would know that by reading a single verse in the Old Testament. But God gives us divine insight, new revelation about Noah that we don't know, that for 120 years while he was building that ark and God was contending with men, Noah was preaching the gospel. Now listen, if crowds and responses and decisions were a mark of how good a preacher Noah was and his faithfulness, then he failed miserably. Because the Bible says in the end, on the day the flood came, only eight were saved. Now, that's not to say others couldn't have been saved during that 120 years. We know of at least one man, the oldest man who ever lived, who died before his father did. Remember him, Methuselah? 
He died the year of the flood, and he was saved during that time. And maybe there were others, but on the day the judgment came, out of the multitudes who were on the planet, there were only eight people who were right with God. We're told in Genesis 6 and verse 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was continually evil. Furthermore, we're told, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. It was a day of gross immorality, of murder, of cruelty, of crime, of lust and injustice. And the human race had gone foul, and the fullest expression of the noatic days will be seen after the rapture of the church, when all the vestiges of good, all of the light in this world, all of the salt that preserves righteousness is gone. Hell will have a holiday, and you'll see the fullest expression, but I'm telling you, it's growing in our day. We are seeing Romans 1 lived out. Now, if you remember from the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that the whole world was enjoying life until the very day that Noah entered the ark. They thought nothing was going to happen. And I'm sure all the experts and I'm sure all the apostates of their day said, oh, Noah, he's an old fuddy-duddy. Don't listen to him. Remember, it had never rained before the great flood. The Bible says a mist used to rise up from the earth and water the surface of the earth. God had a giant sprinkler system across the planet. But Noah said God was going to flood the world. And Jesus tells us right up until the very day, people ignored him. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, Luke 17, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. No one believed him. People thought nothing was going to happen, and then one day God put Noah in the ark, and the Bible says God shut the door, and then the Bible says God sealed him in. Now, the ark, we learn in 1 Peter, is a type. It's an illustration. It's a picture of Christ. There's one ark, one God, three levels, three in one, one door, because there's only one way to come into a relationship with the living God. And after Noah and his family was safely in the ark, God shut the door and God sailed him in. And by the way, God does that for us. When we're saved, God puts us in the ark of safety and he seals us for the day of redemption. But listen, with every decade that is passing, things seem to be getting worse. I hope every teenager is listening carefully to me this morning because your generation is so different from what it was even 50 and 60 years ago. Oh, there were problems in that day. But the young lady who gave up her virginity before marriage was the exception rather than the norm. Men who used drugs and alcohol were the exception rather than the norm. Do you know that they have porn parties at Clemson University and USC, Columbia? They gather for porn parties and then they act them out. It is a wicked day in which we are living. Jesus said, because of lawlessness, Sin has increased and most people's love will grow cold. And now this immorality and this lawlessness is not just happening with the young, it is happening with the old. And we're being anesthetized by the spirit of our day and people reasoning, well, everyone's doing it, it must be right. And that's what they thought during this pre-flood time. 
And then the waters came and the flood came. Now, if that were not enough, God gives us a third example to show that his judgment is not asleep. Not only did he punish angels, not only did he punish the ancient world, Third, God showed his judgment when he punished Lot's world, when he punished Lot's world. He gives us a third reminder of the coming judgment. Verse 6, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. God says that when he burned Sodom and Gomorrah into oblivion, that it is an example of his future judgment. Hold your finger here and turn to the prophet Ezekiel. If you're new to the Bible, Psalms is about dead center, so find Psalms. Most of you can just split the Bible in half here in Psalms and scan to the right, and you'll come to Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Then you will come to the book of Ezekiel. You should bring a Bible. You'll get a lot more. This is God's word I'm preaching, not my opinion. You'll learn if you have a copy of the Scriptures in your hand. Now, there's a chilling parallel, and I want you to see it here in the prophet Ezekiel, between the last day's world and what we even call America and the, the day in which Ezekiel lived as he describes Sodom. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 48, God says this, "'As I live,' declares the Lord God, Sodom, your sister, and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So God outlines for us the sin of Sodom, and the very first sin at the top of his list is arrogance. Some of your translations say pride. Some of your translations say majesty. That's not a bad rendering of the Hebrew. It's the kind of, we're number one. We're it. We're the big cheese. And many of the people that were living in Ezekiel's day had not become sexual perverts, but they were eaten up with pride. And the Bible says there are six things that God hates, yea, even seven, and at the top of his list is the sin of pride. God, the Bible says, is opposed to the proud. And there are some people listening to me today who will not get saved because you're proud. You don't think you need a Savior. And there are people who come here week after week, month after month, who had never walked down the aisle of this church and humbled themselves to join a local fellowship. You know why? Because of pride. In addition to pride, there's the sin of gluttony. The NES renders it abundant food. Literally, the Hebrew says, is in the King James, fullness of bread. That's God's way of just saying they were thinking more about the things of the flesh than they were about the things of the Spirit. Their God had become their belly, as Paul writes in the book of Philippians. But in addition to careless ease, they were idle. The Living Bible renders it this way. They were guilty of pride, too much food, and laziness. They were full of careless ease. God never wants anyone to be idle. People say, well, I'm retired. I've earned the right to be idle. No, you have not. You've earned the right to serve God more with your free time because God knows that idleness is sin. 
In addition, we learn that they were selfish and that, notice, they did not help the poor and needy. God talks about us helping the poor and needy, not to people who won't work, but people who can't work, people sometimes who have lost their job. Proverbs reminds us that he who is gracious to the poor lends to the Lord, and we are to especially help, the Bible says, those who are in the household of faith. And then it was all capped off, notice with verse 50, abominations. They were haughty and committed abominations before me. Now, you can read about those abominations in chapter 19. And if you want to hear a one hour and 15 minute sermon, not for the faint of heart, then go to either YouTube and type in Carl Brogy, is it okay to be gay? Or go to searchthescriptures.org. And I go through every single passage in the word of God that addresses this subject. And I deal with all the misuses and the twisting of scripture that so-called Christians are espousing in our day. Let me just give you one text, 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. That's not someone with effeminate mannerisms, but the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Don't say, well, you know, I'm born a female, but I need to become a male. I'm born a male, I need to become a female. I was born gay. You weren't born gay. If you were born gay, God could not hold you morally culpable for this sin. But there's good news. God can save anyone. And such were some of you. And we have people in this fellowship on our campuses that have represented every single one of these sins in the list. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And I want to tell you nothing, absolutely nothing, will destroy a nation quicker and faster than the sin of sodomy. Write down Isaiah chapter 3, verse 8. Isaiah 3, 8. I want you to see something that ruined Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, and that is ruining America in our day. Isaiah 3 is one of the most distressing passages in the Bible. In Isaiah 3, 8, the prophet is lamenting, for Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions against, are against Yahweh, the Lord, to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Like Sodom and Gomorrah, Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day was not ashamed of their sin, but proud of it as we are now in America. What used to be an embarrassment to us, we talk about every day, we talk about as a person's rights, we laugh about it, we create movies with it, they did not even conceal it. Woe to them. Listen, 1 Corinthians 6 says, do not be deceived. 
So do not be deceived when Lauren Daigle comes out this week, the Dove Award winner, Artist of the Year for Christian Music. And of course, she appeared on The Ellen Show. Nothing necessarily wrong with that. Jerry Falwell would appear on a lot of shows like that, and he would, I think, attack hell with a squirt gun. But he would stand for what was true, and he would defend what was right. And so after she appeared on The Ellen Show, she was interviewed on Monday by Dominique Natty, a national radio show, and she was asked the question by Dominique, do you think homosexuality is a sin? Listen, here's a national recording Christian artist that our young people and old people listen to. I can't honestly answer on that. In a sense, I have too many people that I love that they are homosexual. I don't know. I actually had a conversation with someone last night about it. I can't say one way or the other, I'm not God. Well, I'm here to tell you we're to love all people. But you love people by telling them the truth. Nancy Pelosi says that what I teach is hate speech. What she teaches is hate speech because what she teaches is she's helping to lead people directly into the pit of hell with herself. When you don't tell people the truth, you are being hateful to those people. What God calls an abomination, don't sanction as right. Yes, Lauren Daigle, I am not God either, but I can tell you what God has written on the printed page of Scripture in this book, and homosexuality is a sin. Now, the gay flag flew over the crosses of many churches this week in Austin, Texas, and the conservative Christians rebelled against it. By conservative, I mean Bible-believing because the city of Austin on Tuesday passed an ordinance requiring churches to hire transgender, homosexual, gay people as pastors or any other kind of employment. The city of Austin guarantees, and I quote the ordinance, the opportunity for each person to obtain employment without regard to race, color, religion, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, national origin, age, or disability. Now, the churches asked for an exemption. They said, we will not make an exemption. The mayor of Austin, Steve Adler, says, non-discrimination is a core value in Austin, and we will defend it. And so the U.S. Pastors Council, that happens to be based in Houston, Texas, filed a complaint in the U.S. federal court. You say, it won't ever happen. That's what we were saying as evangelicals when we said gay couples will never be given insurance rights as a couple. That's what we said of gay couples when we said in the early 90s, gay couples won't be able to adopt little children. That's what we said in the early 2000s when we said gay couples won't have the right to a civil union. That's what we said five years ago when we said gay couples won't be able to be legally married. And if Miss Nancy has her way, she'll take away the tax-exempt status of churches like this. You want to preach the Bible? 
fine. You preach homosexuality is a sin. No more tax-exempt status. That's, where, that's the next step. And it will be a short throw from there before they will call it hate speech. You say it will never happen. I am telling you things are happening that we thought would never happen. I took focus off the family, off our radio station this week. Not James Dobson. He left focus. He has his own organization. Don't confuse the two. But they had a speaker on last month, Mark Batterson, the pastor of a large church in Washington, D.C., that has transgender, gay groups. They have small groups that are using books that are endorsing same-sex marriage. And they have them on their broadcast for two days. And I want to believe the best and think, you know, maybe they're just ignorant. Well, they're trying to win people to Christ. I said, you don't win people to Christ by having small groups that sanction same-sex marriage. I said, look, we'll keep you on. Just make a public apology. That we had a pastor on and we gave endorsement to a church that is espousing wickedness and we'll keep you on. They would not do it. Goodbye, no more focus on the family. Who would have ever thought things are happening that we thought would never happen? Peter warned us this day would come before the return of Jesus. 2 Peter 2.6, we are informed that God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. By reducing Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God gave an example. He gave us a warning of what he thinks of sexual perversion. So do not be fooled by false teachers. They may tell you that the sin of sodomy is okay. Yes, First Baptist Church, Greenville, South Carolina, and two churches in this town do gay marriages, but they are wrong, my friend. It is an evil, and God hates it. Genesis, now the men of Sodom were wicked, exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. Peter tells us they were ungodly. Jude says they were given to fornication and going after strange flesh. Do not miss the point in all of this. Let me bring it in. Verse 2, 2 Peter 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth is maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. How can we be so sure, Peter, that God's going to really deal with these people? Because it appears like he's doing nothing. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and if God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter... In spite of Abraham's prayer and Lot's last-minute warning, God brought fire and brimstone across that place. Did they think judgment was going to come? Not at all. Right up, just like the people in the day, right up to the day, they thought everything was fine. 
Jesus said it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. By the way, don't ever say that Jesus didn't speak against homosexuality. This is one of four passages where he did. This was a wickedness in his mind. Up to the very minute... And then suddenly destruction came. They were all destroyed. The apostle wants us to know, just as God did not spare them, nor will God spare these false teachers, or for that matter, anyone who follows after them. The angels who were judged, the people who perished in the flood, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah are examples of a judgment that is coming. And verse 9 tells us that God did all of this Notice, then the Lord knows, if he did all of this, then God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. All right, I'm almost done, believe it or not. Point two, the true believer will experience the grace of God. The true believer will experience the grace of God. Peter's purpose is not just to denounce the apostates, but he wanted to encourage true believers. He wants to encourage us here in this fellowship this morning. And so throughout these illustrations of judgments, there's illustrations of grace. The first is God showed his grace when he rescued Noah. He showed his grace when he rescued Noah. Verse 5, he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, Noah was a man of faith, and God preserved him it's not the word sozo to save, it's the word fatemai, it means to protect. God protected him really on two levels if you think about it. He preserved him and that he wasn't conformed to the culture around him. For 120 years he preached the word, the world got more and more wicked and more and more corrupt, but Noah wasn't influenced by that world. He was able to have an impact on his own three sons and their three daughters. It's an encouragement to me. He had an influence on his family, not by isolating them. He was very much in the, in the midst of it, but God gave him grace in the midst of that corruption. Jesus prayed this, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. He raised a godly family in the midst of a corrupt world. Yet this man's family was rescued from that corruption. It's obvious, but there's a second level in which God protected him, not just from the corruption of the pagan world around him, but from the judgment that followed. He was saved with seven others. And you would expect, as the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to write, he writes in a very logical way. I mean, think about it. First, he describes how God dealt with angels who committed a wicked sin in Noah's day. And now while we're thinking about Noah, let me talk about Noah. There's, there's a flow of thought here that the Spirit of God is expressing through the pen of the Apostle Peter. And so he speaks not just of the judgment in that day, but the salvation of that day. And if you remember his first letter, he tells us that the ark itself was a type, an illustration of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Genesis, the Bible says, God was grieved that he had made man on the earth. So God warned Noah. He built the ark. On that last day, he went into the ark, or he was there for several days, and, and then God closed the door and sealed him in. And it's interesting. When God had him build the ark, he says, I want you to pitch the ark, and I want you to pitch it on the inside, and I want you to pitch it on the outside. 
And it's not the typical word that you would expect him to use for pitch. It's the word kafar. It's translated elsewhere in the Bible, atonement. I want you to put pitch on the inside and the outside. And the name of this pitch is called atonement. Now, the waters represented the judgments of God, but the judgment of God could not get through that atonement, through that pitch. He was sealed in. Just as when you're saved, you walk up the gangplank of salvation. You believe on the Lord Jesus, the only way into heaven. And the Bible says you're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. You know, I meet some people who say you can lose your salvation. No, we're sealed for the day of redemption. You cannot be unsealed. And if you question them long enough, you really discover that they do believe in the doctrine of eternal security, just not now. They think, well, someday, when I die, I'll get into heaven and I can wipe the brow on my forehead and say, I finally made it, now I'm saved forever. Listen, in the context, we're talking about angels who fell from heaven. Security is not found in a place. It's found in a person, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good place for an amen. Peter wants us to understand that this judgment is real. But if you walk through the ark of safety, then you will be protected from this coming judgment. And those same waters that punished the people raised him up on top of a mountain to safety. And you will either drown in the waters of judgment or you will be saved by Christ, but there's no neutrality. Secondly, God showed his grace when he rescued Lot, when he rescued Lot. And if he rescued Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, not only did he rescue Noah, who walked with God, but he rescued Lot, who did not walk with God. Now, remember, there was a time when Abraham got out of fellowship with God. He went down to Egypt when he shouldn't have. And down in Egypt, he made some foolish decisions that he spent paying for for a long time. We're still paying for some of those decisions today. But down there in Egypt, his nephew Lot got a taste of the world. And so while Abraham got right and he got out of Egypt, he never got Egypt out of Lot. And if you remember, they had the cowboys in that day, a little bit of a range war of sorts, and they had to split the land in. And Lot made his decision, the Bible says, and that the land he chose reminded him of Egypt. And so the Bible says he chose to pitch his tents towards Sodom. And then after a while, you get kind of used to Sodom. You get used to a little filth on TV, so I'll go a little deeper in filth. And I get used to that filth, and I'll I'll go into porn. Before you know it, you're a total pervert. He pitches his tents towards Sodom. After a while, he moves into Sodom, and by the end of his life, he's actually a leader in a city that is wicked. Now, the Bible calls him righteous Lot which means he was a saved man. You might not have known that from the Old Testament, but God tells us divinely he was a saved man. But experientially, he was out of fellowship with God. And according to Abraham's intercession of the place in Genesis 18, if there were just 10 righteous people in the city, God would have spared it. Now, if Lot could have only influenced his own family, because if you read it in a literal English text, there was Mr. and Mrs. Lot, two unmarried daughters, 
two future sons-in-laws, at least two sons, it's plural, one married daughter with his spouse, total family connection, 10 people. If Lot could have just influenced his own family, God would have spared the place. Lot was a believer, but he paid a price for his sin when he chose to live in Sodom. Verse 8 tells us, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. There can't be peace in the heart of the true child of God when you are in a place that God calls wicked and you are compromised. He was tormented. He was distressed. You see, unlike Noah, who had no choice, and he raised his family. Lot had a choice. He chose to live in that place. He presumed on the grace of God Almighty. And in the end, he got his two daughters out, but he never got Sodom out of his two daughters. He was rescued, not because of his prayer, but because of Abraham's prayer. Abraham, outside of Sodom, had more influence than Lot did in Sodom. I really believe that God has given us both sides of the equation here to see a clear picture of his grace. On the one hand, you have Noah, who lived in a world where the Bible says they were continually evil, and yet he was blameless and he walked with God. He is much like those Christians today, sitting here today, who have no choice. You work in an office, a hospital, a factory, and a battalion, and you're surrounded by things that you'd rather not hear or see. And yet you're not presuming on God's grace and God gives you the strength to walk through that. On the other hand, there's a whole lot of people today who are like Lot. They're making choices that they do not have to make. They're saved people, but they're choosing to engage in an unhealthy way in the world's environment. And so Lot was willing to give his two virgin daughters to be ravaged by those sodomite men. He presumed on the grace of God Almighty Now, God in his grace rescued Noah. God in his grace rescued Lot. Third, God shows his grace when he rescues you. In verse 9, Peter moves out of the illustration of the past, and he brings it to where we live today. If he saved Noah from water, if he saved Lot from fire, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God can rescue you from temptation just like he rescued Noah. God can rescue you today. In a sense, Lot was rescued against his will. I mean, the angel had to drag him out by the hand. Pretty sad picture of a life. Now, how are we going to apply this today? Let me make three applications as we close. Number one, ask yourself honestly, am I a Noah kind of person? Am I a Noah kind of person? There's three classes of people living on the earth today. Am I a Noah kind of person? See, when Jesus returns, there'll be the Noah types. We might call them a spirit-filled Christian. Noah loved God. Noah obeyed God. He was not perfect. None of us are. But obedience was the pattern of his life. And he was secure. He was sealed. He may have fallen down a few times in that ark. He never fell out of the ark. He was secure, and when it was all over, he went into a brand new world, and he received a full reward. God, in essence, would say to him, well done, thy good and faithful servant. He was loving, he was serving, he was looking, he was longing for God's will to be done in his life. Second, there is the lot kind of person. Ask yourself, am I I a lot kind of person? How did lot go to the mountains? 
Chapter 19 tells us the angels of Genesis had to drag him there. They dragged him by the hand, and most of his loved ones, including his own sons, sons-in-law, would not respond. With the exception of just two of his daughters, all the rest were left behind in the judgment there in Sodom. And though, again, while he was able to get those two daughters out, they were worldly. Years before, he had made a worldly decision by choosing to live in a place where God didn't really want him to live. And he typifies the backslidden lukewarm Christian of our day. You say, Pastor, can a Christian go to hell? Of course not. But you can lose your reward when you get to heaven. And listen to me, Mr. Compromised Christian. You may lose your family. Lot's not enjoying his family in heaven today. He wasn't able to impact them. Maybe his two daughters will be there. And if Jesus came back today, some of you would crawl under the seat if the truth be told. Because your heart is like Lot. Third, and ask it honestly, am I a Lot's kind of person? A Lot's wife kind of person? There'll be a third class that will be present when Jesus returns. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife had her heart in the world. She longed for Sodom. And on the day when God judged those twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife turned back, and in a moment, the Bible says she was turned into a pillar of salt. The angels had to drag her out, and they brought her right to the very edge of Sodom, and she looked back and went back. And today, Mrs. Lot is in hell. And God has brought some of you to the very edge of salvation, and he is wooing, and he is wanting you to be saved. And while you may not turn into a pillar of salt, your heart might, and you may come to a point where you will no longer hear the voice of God Almighty. I want to tell my lost friends today, that the Noah and the lots of this world who will be taken out before the great tribulation, there will other people who will be left behind and that will turn into the lake of fire. Do you understand what Peter is saying? Do you understand the flow of thought here in the Revelation? I pushed the pause button today for a reason because I want you to see that God is a God of grace and a God of judgment. If God didn't spare the people of Noah's day but judge them, and if God didn't spare the, the people of Lot's day, but judge them, if God didn't spare the angels, but judge them, God will judge every unbeliever. Now, God is also a God of grace. He is the unsparing God. And the Bible teaches us that God did not spare the angels. God did not spare the ancient world. God did not spare Lot's world. And the Bible also says God did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all. And if there was ever a time when God could be lenient towards sin, it's when his son was on that cross. But I want to tell you, if God did not spare his own son who became the substitute for your judgment, if you ignore him or reject him, neither will he spare you. And you will remember this sermon for all of eternity in hell if you do not respond. God is a God of judgment. 
He is a God of grace, and he's put before you today a man of God who in the Spirit of God is preaching the Word of God so that you can be saved, and you can be saved today if you will call upon Jesus. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you for amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world to save sinners. Father, you've brought someone, I'm sure, within the sound of my voice who's really not truly in their heart of hearts born again. They've never had a life change. But thank you that you can deliver them from their sin and into new life. Help someone today, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, by your death and resurrection, I ask that you save me. I bring my sin to you for you to change it and for you to forgive me. Would you say that to him today? Now, some of us are like Mr. Lot. And everything that the man dreamed and schemed for in the end went up in smoke. And some of us are wasting our lives on the vain things of this world. Father, help us to guard our hearts against the carnality of Lot. Help us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to make a difference, to make an impact on the things that really matter in this life. Father, there are people who will spend hours today watching a professional football game out in the cold and bitter weather, but they think a preacher's sermon is too long. Their priorities are all out of whack. And we live in a country where many of our politicians are calling evil good and good evil. Father, protect us as you protected Noah. Help us, Holy Father, to walk in righteousness until the end. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. We're going to sing it as a hymn of worship as well. Some of you don't need to make a decision today, but you need to worship God during this time. But if you're here and you have a decision to make, you've never openly, publicly confessed Christ, I want to give you a chance today. Jesus said, if you know him on the inside, you'll confess him on the outside, and it will show itself in baptism which is a picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You may be here and you're saved and you're baptized and you need a church. We ask that you join publicly. We need you. We know that if you know Jesus, you're not ashamed of him. You know enough about this church to make a decision. So if you have a decision to make, leave your seat now and meet me here in the front.